0: Greetings my friends and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Chad Miro. Now Chad's an entrepreneur and also a recent author and he's got an amazing story that he's going to share with us today. He's been kind enough to take some time out. So Chad, welcome to the show, man.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Jason. This is great.
0: Absolutely, my friend. So I understand uh, you've got quite the story and I want to dive into as much as humanly possible in the short time that I have with you today. But um, it's always nice to get a little bit of color around people, a little bit of background information. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'd am I'm, be curious to know if you could just give us a little bit on who you are, where you're from, how you got started in the entrepreneurial world, and we'll go from there.
1: Sounds great. I can do that. Um, I, I am from Saskatchewan, Canada, right in the middle of the prairies, flatland, and I grew up on the farm, um, my dad and my brother and myself ran the grain farm growing up and right through high school. And once I was done high school, I decided to do my own thing. So out into the work world I went and I got into potash mining underground and absolutely loved it underground. Um My mind wasn't sparked, though. It it didn't really do it for me as far as lighting a fire underneath my butt every day. So I decided to to head out on my own, and I got into real estate and started buying a couple of companies and started fixing roads. So um, my my journey went from farming and mechanically inclined into potash mining and then into fixing roads and eventually car parts, so you know, the saying goes: toilets and tenants, and <laughs> <laughs> mixed up with all the other things I had going on. So life, life was very, very busy, um, very rewarding, fulfilling, and and seemingly going incredibly well for me.
0: Absolutely. Well, as as you know, my wife is Canadian, and I think the first time I heard the word potash is when I visited Alberta, and I don't even remember the context of the conversation, but. Uh, what is potash for everyone out there who's wondering what that word actually means?
1: Essentially, farmers um, spread it on their land as, as fertilizer. It's fertilizer all across the world for, for farmers.
0: Right on, my friend. Now, did you come from an entrepreneurial family or was that something that you uh, sort of developed on your own?
1: It was something I developed on my own, essentially. My, my dad ran the farm and he was actually a pharmacist as well. So he had a little bit of the the entrepreneurial spirit, I would I would suggest Um, for me in my early 20s. I was I was kind of bored. I I started reading about economy and stock market and running businesses, that sort of thing. So it it became my passion to learn about businesses and how it worked. Um, I knew I knew eventually I'd get to that.
0: For sure. When when you look back on those years, are there any particular uh, books or mentors that stand out to you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, think and Grow Rich, Robert Kiyosaki was um, kind of my eye opener, if you will. And Napoleon Hill's work, um, I think the guy was brilliant for his time. And, you know, all the successful people that he interviewed and and got their take on what it's like to run a business and how to succeed in it. Really spoke to me and filled filled my burning desire to to go after something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the combination combination of those two books really got me excited about real estate, and wanting to get into that kind of stuff. So that's that's where I got my start.
0: Yeah, I remember uh, talking to pretty much everyone I've ever spoken to about the business world or the financial world, and I always mention uh, rich dad, poor dad. Always uh, mention pretty much any of Kiyosaki's uh, books, you know, Cashflow Quadrant, you know, you name them, I've read them all. I'm just curious what your biggest takeaway was, because uh, I remember my lightning, my sort of lightning flash moment when it was talking about leverage and making money as a kid, you know, like manufacturing coins in the backyard kind of a thing. What was it that that sort of sparked your interest?
1: For me, it was uh, OPM, other mm. people's money. The way he explains, you know, starting a business or buying properties with other people's money, whether it be private investors or, or, you know, banks, lenders, that sort of thing. I I sort of blew my mind wide open as far as, oh my gosh, the opportunities are endless when you. think of it from that way. So that, that's really what fired me up.
0: Nice. Do you, did, have you structured most of your deals that way? Like coming out of, uh, you know, uh, the financial side using uh, bank money or investor money?
1: Yeah. I've used a combination of, of all of those teachings, um, to not only start businesses, but to grow them, um, to, you know, to, to, to to keep them running essentially. Anytime there's funds that are needed for something, uh, whether banks help out or private money, uh, investors, uh, there's always, there's always a way to make it happen. So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Uh, on Facebook yesterday, I posed the question, you know, regarding, uh, building wealth. And, uh, you know, the question was in and around this idea of, can you save your way, you know, to wealth? Can you save with the purpose of creating wealth? And I think you chimed in there. I'm curious uh, if I could get a live thought since I got you face to face right now.
1: Yeah, I think it was, um, if I remember right, I basically said I don't really save a whole lot of pennies. I, I put my money to work. It's always in a company somewhere doing something. Um, the only time I might save money is if there's a down payment needed on something, and I can make that happen in a short period of time. But otherwise, uh, creating creating assets that you know have an income at, at the end of the day is is what it's all about for me.
0: For sure, and you know, as that relates to you know sort of what's going on in the economy these days, i know, I know in the states there was just advertised inflation number of nearly seven percent. um are you guys seeing any anything related to that in Canada?
1: Yeah, I think we're not much different than that. I don't know the exact number, but we are, man, everything is definitely skyrocketing in prices, straight from the lumber yards to the grocery stores, gas every everything it's uh it's definitely putting the pinch on on folks, that's for sure.
0: Yeah. And so when you think about that, if you can, you know, I know when I was first sort of introduced to the Canadian way of borrowing money, I think, you know, loans are, you know, five to seven years in most cases. Um, You know, here a standard mortgage is 30 years and you're locked in for that, the life of the loan. So you can really lock in, you know, shorting the dollar in the future. But in Canada you're almost forced to refinance unless you want to pay up a little bit every 5 to 7 years. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense not to when you can borrow at what 2% or less and inflation is 6 or 7%. You know what are your thoughts on that?
1: Um yeah, that's that that's a tough one for sure. Um we we do have access to mortgages that are 25, 30 years, sometimes even even further out. And Kind of the rates that you're talking about, 2%, um, is, a, is a pretty sweet deal and a mortgage for sure. As far as the business lending goes, five to seven years is is correct. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, working with a, a lender really closely to to make that happen over a long term is, uh, is definitely a challenge, um, especially when things in the economy aren't great or if the business that um, somebody's running isn't Showing the numbers, it, it can definitely be a challenge. I've been lucky that way. I've uh, busted out the last two years and I've had the best years um, all the way around. So everything's great with that. But yeah, you you're right. It's a bit different in Canada than it than it is in the states.
0: For sure, man. If you uh, you know if you're talking to you know a lot of guys right now are looking at the economy, I think as a whole and understanding, or or more and more people, I should say, are understanding that there's really no such thing as a safe, secure job. There's really no such thing as security. It's almost a facade. And I think a lot of people have gone into the entrepreneurial world thinking, you know, I should probably create something for myself. You know, if if you're talking to someone in that mindset, you know, what would be one of the things in terms of advice that you could offer them, um, you know, to stay the course because it, it looks easy on the outside looking in. However, when you get there and, and you start balancing time with employees, with taxation, with paperwork. I mean, it's it's not all it's cracked up to be sometimes if you're not ready for it. So, you know, how does one prepare for that world?
1: For me, it comes down to passion. I, um, I, I started my own businesses in 2012, so nearly nine years and full on with them in, uh, what is it, uh, seven years now. So for me, you know, it, it's fine to go out and have a business and to have employees and And put in the work, put in the time and the efforts. But at the end of the day, if you don't love what you're doing, what do you really have? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, if you don't love what you're doing, uh, I think it's a much, much harder road to to head down and and find success in it. Um, If it doesn't excite you getting out of bed to do it, I think you got to renegotiate with yourself and figure something else out. Because that's quite simply not going to work long term, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I think Steve Jobs said something to that effect, right? Because he said the reason that you want to be passionate about it is not because you want to just wake up excited, but it's just so damn hard. I think was his words, you know, it's so damn hard, right? Like if you don't love it, <laughs> you know, you're going to pay the price in lots of sleepless nights and worry.
1: Absolutely. That's great. Yeah. He's, uh, what a brilliant man
0: for sure. For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, uh, You know, obviously, there's a a few things I want to get to with you today. One of the things that you know we started vibing on, I discovered you obviously through Psy, and then I know you released a book recently, and this is based on one of your life experiences. And I'm wondering if you can, you know, give us a little bit of background leading up to uh, what you what you call the crash, and you know, talk a little bit about what. The what happened, the how it happened, and then let's dive into a little bit of what you've taken away from it. Um, so I know you've experienced a bit of a tragedy, to say the least. So um, maybe if you're open to it, share a little bit about uh, what led up to this.
1: Absolutely, brother. So as I as I alluded to just a few minutes ago, um, becoming self-employed in 2014, I we, you know I I I went into it speed ahead and had an amazing year in fourteen, 2015, 35-40% growth, one year to the next, things were, were going very, very well for us. And um, January of 2016, on the uh, er, very early morning January 3rd, I received a phone call from the local RCMP um, telling me that my sister and my brother-in-law were in a car accident. And he was very short. He was very blunt and to the point. And he he essentially said that they're they're gone. Um, I, I don't remember the exact words, but you know my perception of that phone call is is very very blurry and very very um, emotional to talk about. Of course, mm. he um, he he told me that they they were gone on impact and that the. Um, Ambulances and, and police were out there and, and doing their thing. And I instantly went to, what about the kids? Are the are the kids okay? Um, my niece and nephew, at five and two at that time, were in fact in the same car. And the officer shared with me that um, my nephew was also pronounced dead on, on scene. And that my five-year-old niece um, was going to or was at the hospital, can't remember 100%, um, but that he didn't think it looked good. Um, There was maybe a chance and he he really didn't have a whole lot of information to go on that. So I I found myself on the floor, on my knees and sweaty hands and barely holding onto the phone, um, trying to make sense of the words that he, he was sharing with me. And not really knowing you know too much other than terrible car accident and my niece is maybe clinging to life on the other side of the of the city. Um so this was just out of Saskatoon. I happened to be in Saskatoon um and I I went flying out of the hotel room and jumped in my car and drove across the city to the hospital. And I, I learned that they had worked on my nephew for, for quite some time, trying to revive him, trying to save him. And when I walked through the door in the, the NICU, they, um, they had him in a room and my brother-in-law's parents were there just before me. And I had an opportunity to, to at least see him. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't look good. Um, yeah, the little breathing apparatus on his mouth, where they're pumping the air into him, and I, um, I heard not too long after I got that got there, within a few minutes that he too was um, was gone, and there was nothing to to do to help. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that sort of confirmed what the officer had told me on the phone that there's uh, something horrible, horrible happening. And my sister was my best friend. My sister and I talked. Nearly daily. She knew everything that was happening in my life, and I knew everything that was happening in her life. And those two kids, my my niece and nephew, were um, very close to to me and my family. We saw them all the time. Um, It was just after Christmas. We spent a lot of time with them over the Christmas holidays. And the last time I saw them was December 27th. We were at the bowling alley doing a family family get-together. So... You know, less than a week later, to walk into a hospital room and see little man just lifeless and cold, and uh, it just absolutely brutal, shook me to the core. Mm-hmm. And I, um, I held him, and I don't know how long I held him. I uh, possibly two hours before the next set of family members arrived to. Um, see what was going on and see, see where McGuire was. Um, and, you know, just holding him and feeling how cold it was and seeing him turn blue, oh, man, that's uh, it's an indescribable feeling. And I, um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know what was next. I wondered where Cameron was, my, my five-year-old niece, and she was just across the hall in the NICU and at some point I did go across the hall to see her in her room and hooked up to every every medical machine you could think of, and we learned that she was quite possibly brain dead, mm. and the machines she was hooked up to were breathing for her and keeping her alive till they could um, do all the necessary tests to, to see if that was in fact the case. Mm. So... My, my mind is quite blurry on those events that day. I don't know if that was hours later, a half a day later. Um, I don't really know. But at some point later in that day, um, a team of, of experts came into the room to, to do all the tests that's required to see if there's brain function. I stayed in the room and held their hand. I was right next to the bed when, when they performed those tests. And um, again, terrible. Terrible experience of, of, you know, seeing somebody you really love and they unhook the machines to see what her body does and, and whether her brain takes over or not. Um, terrible. They um, they pronounced her brain dead and they did a second test. A uh, different team of, of experts come in, doctors, and they do essentially the same thing um, just to confirm. And... Once we learned that that was factual and she was, in fact, uh, brain brain dead, then the discussion became, okay, uh, since since she was on all these machines, we can possibly look at donation for her organs, and we did that. Um, Pretty amazing to have two families standing in a room making a decision whether or not to do that, and it was um, literally 90 seconds. A resounding yes um cameron was the most energetic five-year-old little girl with the biggest smile and the biggest heart and we we just knew that if that energy could could help somebody else then of of course we would do that so we did and from there it's the what i call the grief fog of not really knowing what the heck happened in the next few days or or how it all played out, but we, we put together the most amazing tribute of love. Um, We, we, we coined it that and we called it that rather than a funeral and 1200 people showed up to the hall. It was uh, unreal. It was awesome. And um, we, we learned in that first week that it was a a drunk driver that T bone them Mm -hmm. um, just after midnight, it was about 1.00 AM. And there happened to be an officer traveling down that highway um, close enough that he was literally on scene in uh, under a couple of minutes. He sort of saw um, the, the end of it, if you will. And um, he, uh, he was actually in the hospital and told us what he saw. Quite obviously shook him right to the core. And um, he, uh, he shared with us that he was the one who checked the bodies and, and you know, Put to put together a plan as far as you know how do how do we deal with the situation that him and his partner came up on, and he shared with us that Shanda, my sister, and and Jordan, my brother-in-law, were deceased when he got there, and he thought the only one that might have some hope was little McGuire. He was two and uh, in his car seat behind his dad, right behind the driver's seat, and this officer shared that he held little Maguire's hand and, um, it's kind of the last thing I remember about him sharing with us because that, that stuck with me, has stuck with me, um, all the way through in the last six years. Wow. Um, yeah. That's
0: amazing. I can't even imagine what you must've felt. You're, you know, so it sounds like you were basically living, you know, a pretty, normal, happy, successful life. And then all of a sudden you get a phone call out of the blue one morning and you lost four lives in one morning. Incredible. Yeah. Incredible. So what are you thinking at this point? I mean, you, uh, I would imagine it'd be kind of hard to go back just to, you know, normal life at this point, you know, I mean, you, you had mentioned that you and your sister were really tight. I'm assuming you and the rest of the family were pretty tight as well. You know, I mean, How does that, how does that impact just how you move through your day?
1: My short answer is, is in every way possible. Um, I, I, I found it hard to put one foot in front of the other. I found it hard to remember to eat, um, simple daily tasks that we take for granted. We do on autopilot. I didn't do, I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Um, they they had food for us in the hospital. I didn't even know it was there. I I totally forgot that we'd had done that. Like for me, my memory was 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 horrible. I I had to ask my kids, um, you know, what time is hockey practice and what day do I got to pick you up from where? And lean on our inner circle of people around those kids as far as. I I was not remembering those things. There was days I forgot to pick my kids up from school. Really? There was days that I'd be feeding my kids supper and a phone would ring and say, hey, aren't you coming to hockey practice? I just just would miss it. I'd forget about it. My mind was somewhere else. Short-term memory was shot. So, you know, you're exactly right. Going from two years of of feeling like things were successful and running well and family life was good and business life was good to in an instant all of it is upside down all of it is you know seemingly floating in the wind like a feather it's it's all up in the air no control right it's just that feeling of having zero control
0: absolutely were you i mean at this point i would have to imagine that you're feeling all sorts of things but do you remember at all how you felt, uh, you know, after it sort of sank in that these people were the, who were so close to you are are now, you know, they're, they're, they're not in your life anymore on a daily basis, kind of a thing. You know, they're not, you know, they're not there to, to see, touch and feel, if you will. I mean, did you have anger or resentment or were you just disappointed and sad? I mean, it sounds like you were in, like you, I think you described it as a fog earlier.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Um, grief fog is is the best way to describe it all for me um but but you're 100 percent right too and in, in saying you know and there there is anger there's rage there's frustration there's complete and utter shock in the first two weeks um like i don't i don't even think that any of us really knew in the first two three weeks what really happened what what The enormity of all of it would be. Uh, You know, all the family goes home after the funeral, all the friends that call on you and reach out to you. That, I mean, that's uh, the support was amazing, all the way across the province, across the country, people all over the world reaching out. They did vigils, they did all kinds of, of things. So the support was phenomenal. Yet, you know, two to three weeks out is to me the point when it kind of slaps you in the face again where it's like, oh my gosh, um, that really happened because I haven't seen them for a few days. I haven't been able to talk to my sister. I haven't had little McGuire holding my finger wanting to walk across the house. I haven't had Cameron bouncing and laughing and giggling and, you know, jumping on my lap like she normally would. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it at some point I think you, you sort of navigate from – from the shock and the awe into what's next. What do we, what do we do with their house? What do we do with their, their clothing, their, the food in the fridge? Chana just went to Costco the day before, bridge right full, nobody in the house. I mean, those are things you don't even consider in the first couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As you were saying that, I was was just, I didn't even consider that. Didn't think about it. Didn't, didn't register with me. I'm still stuck on the, the fact of the loss and there's still the tangible practical aspect of, of dealing with what's left in the aftermath. Uh, you know, what, what did you guys end up doing?
1: You know, I'm going to, I'm going to back up just a bit. So for us, it was, you know, when you go to the funeral home and you're planning a funeral, there's, there's questions there, like is what, where's the wills, mm. the insurance, um, who all do we phone? to tell them that this has happened. I remember being in the hospital, just going through my contacts on my phone and hitting call and the numbness took over, phoning people and telling them what happened. And every phone call, you're breaking somebody's heart. Um, dude, that's that's hard to make 100, 150 phone calls in a couple of days with all the amazing people that, that knew my family and, you know, Carrying somebody's heart open when you make that phone call, it just rips my heart open even more every time. That was that was one of the hardest things. And then, you know, getting to the funeral home and, and you know, where is the paperwork? Where is um, the mortgage payments come from? Where are bank accounts? Where are all of the things you just don't even consider or think about in the first week, of course. But eventually, at some point, you, you do. You have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. so um getting into the house and you know what do we do with the kids toys man it's hard to see the kids toys when they're not there playing with them hard to go into you know the bedrooms and see beds and cribs and like i said a fridge full of food um that was an eye-opener too going to the house the first day
0: yeah i can Um, imagine that had to be pretty surreal
1: yeah and you know none of us really knew what to do so it's Um, as, as two families, my brother in law's family and my family coming together trying to figure out all these things, right? How do you plan the funeral? Where do you have it? What do you do with the house? What do you do with the contents? Um, so, you know, most of it was straightforward and easy. Toys are toys. Mm. They, we donated toys to different organizations here in Saskatoon. Um, some of the stuff that meant something to one of us, we, we kept some of it of course i gave a, i gave mcguire a, a mini stick a week a week before for christmas and um, if you can imagine a little two-year-old running around the house with a mini stick just learning how to slap a ball and occasionally hit somebody's shin or or <laughs> I, I remember specifically he hit the couch once with the with the stick and he said sorry to the couch and just a little cutie the way he would say sorry it was um, sorry kind of and yeah. we uh, a lot of us in the family still say it that way uh, for that reason that's kind of our last memory of him learning to talk and run around and play mini sticks and you know just being a little boy so some of the stuff that we saw in the house that meant something to us we we grabbed it and of course there's a little bit of hard feelings with some of that because what do you do when two people want the same item? And um, it, that, that was a challenge getting through that. Two families trying to navigate through the most horrific thing. And you got these things that you have to do and you have to deal with like paying the power bill, paying the energy bill. And how do we list the house? What do we list it for? Do we write all of those things? Um, we were quite happy that the house sold fairly quickly. Nobody really wanted to go there anymore, of course. Um I still I still drive by once in a while, once a month, once every couple of months kind of thing, just to just to remember. We had a lot of good times there and a lot of good things happened in the yard and in the house. Um and you know, you know, navigating through that. In that first year, man, I um I probably went by that house twice a week because for me it was hanging on. It was you know still kind of some disbelief how the heck can that happen they're, they're just gone that's maybe if i drive by the lights are on mm-hmm. somebody's home and it became yeah the lights are on now somebody's home but it's a different family so you know that in itself was was a challenge for me and figuring out how to navigate through that in in a healthy way mm-hmm. um yeah the the house thing was uh, i think through all of us kind of for a loop. That, that was tough. That was very tough.
0: I can imagine, you know, so going through this experience, you know, losing, you know, four people who are very close to you, huge part of your life. Now you've had to deal with the practicalities of, you know, all of the stuff, the material, everything left behind. There's still the issue of uh, the person who hit uh, your family, You know, there's still the issue of how you're feeling internally. And I'm guessing that this wasn't an overnight process of you coming to any realizations. So I'm wondering if you could maybe walk us through, you know, after the experience going through some of these things, this liquidation of assets and property you know, where's your mental state at this point? And, you know, what are you feeling in terms of uh, getting back to normal in your own life and in your own family and in your own businesses?
1: Mm-hmm. Even just digesting a question, that's a lot. Um, if, if you can imagine, you know, as I was just walking through house and house contents simultaneously while that's happening, we're dealing with um, crown prosecutors and lawyers and uh, the local uh, SGI, it's called the the um, car insurance company locally here. Um, when there's a car accident, there's, you know, insurances to deal with, with that sort of thing. So dealing with all of that, all simultaneously, learning that she's in in prison, learning that she was in the drunk tank the first night, learning that. She got out of her car with not a scratch and she was looking for a phone and she thought she got hit. She thought somebody hit her. Um, learning about all that and, you know, sort of from there trans- transitioning into um, the announcement that the local RCMP had laid charges and that it was three causes of death because Cameron was still on life support for the first day. And, you know, that changed to four counts of everything the next day. And, you know, hearing all of that, um, I didn't really turn the TV on uh, for the first couple of days. So I heard it from people around me. Um, And, you know, learning about what the Crown prosecutor is going to go for and sitting in lawyers' meetings. And if you can imagine being at the house and dispersing toys and then two hours later being in the crown prosecutor's office talking about as a family, what would we like to see as for sentencing?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, it's, it's a, it's a mental, it's a mental, um, it's just harsh. Like it's so much all at once. Right. It seems
0: like almost impossible task to ask of a human who is obviously emotionally raw, you know, you're, you're, it's, I mean, as I'm listening to this, I'm just trying to imagine myself in your shoes, balancing logic and reason with emotion, you know, and, and wondering which of those two things should win in which moment, right? Because on some level you have to maintain some semblance of civility and you want to be a good human being and you want to take care of all your responsibilities and also make sure that on some level you see, uh, you know, some semblance of justice, if there is such a thing, in a situation like this, I, which probably isn't. You know, and then balancing that against the emotional side—that's probably just really raw. And you know, like you said, frustrated, angry, all of those things. You know, on some level, it's almost like in that emotional state, you're asking someone in a, in this in the case of prosecuting someone else, it's almost like, you know, how can that person make a logical, reasonable decision? when they haven't even finished processing what happened, you know, it's almost like you're asking for vengeance in a way, you know, how, how do, what's your take on that? Having survived and been through that?
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with you that it's, you know, when you're, when you're that emotionally raw and you're that hurt and you're that beat up, it is, it is hard. It is so hard to make, you know, informed decision or have opinions on something that mean so, so much. So it's um, it it was definitely one of the most challenging things I've ever experienced and been through in my life. And, you know, the combination of both things and throwing and also being an entrepreneur and running my own businesses at home, I uh, I checked out. I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I leaned on employees to do the best they could do. I was running a road crew at that time and beautiful sunny days and I'm not there. I'm in the city dealing with lawyers. I'm in the city dealing with, with uh, house contents or, you know, some days I couldn't put one foot in front of the other and I would tell the guys to go home even on days we should have been working or I'd go hang out at the golf course to try to find some mental clarity or even just a piece of it. Um, so, you know, businesses were were definitely not run properly during that period of time my life with my kids not run properly at all. I um, had to lean on, on other people definitely to help me out. Um, But yeah, as far as the sentencing goes and, you know, what are we going to go for, for sentencing and time and how that might all work. They, they, they gave us a lot of guidance. They suggested, you know, we can do this or this. Uh, What do you guys think? And, you know, I agree with you when you're that emotionally charged and hurt um, you sort of have to rely on the people that are experts and and know what they're doing and um, whether we liked it or not, whether we agreed with it or not, some of us spoke our opinion, some of us didn't and um, you you move on. You have to move on.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, you know, I have a bit of an understanding of what it, the process looks like here in the states, and I'm, I'm guessing it's probably very similar there. But, you know, at the end of the day, when a drunk driver has, you know, t-boned another car, basically caused the deaths of four people at this, at this point, you know, what is that person facing? You know, what, what do the penalties look like for someone who uh, commits something like that? I think here in the states, it's basically vehicular manslaughter. It's, you know, like a it's, akin, it's almost akin to murder in some sense.
1: Very similar here in Canada. Um, and of course, the severity and the complexity of, of uh, these sorts of cases uh, can be very different across the board. Um, they basically go on how you know, other people were prosecuted based on you know, similarities, as in, did, did they take one life, two lives, three lives, four lives, that sort of thing. As harsh as that sounds, um, that's sort of what they go by and at the end of the day she she was sentenced to ten years, mm. and uh, of course that's that comes with a whole realm of thoughts and feelings and and shock and disbelief and hurts and pains um, and everybody takes it differently, of course. Um, I learned really quickly that everybody grieves differently everybody thinks about the sentencing differently. Um, and even being in court hearing uh, the drunk driver, Catherine McKay, read read her statement. Everybody thought about that differently and dealt with that differently. Um, we all had our opportunities to read our victim impact statements, and man, oh man, if you want to see a courtroom full of tears, uh, that's uh, that, that definitely did it. Um,
0: I'm curious, man. What did um you said her name was Catherine? What did Catherine have to say for herself in court? You know, what I'm just I can't even imagine what I would say if I were in her shoes.
1: So we we all um there there's a few court cases uh, leading up to the sentencing as in she was supposed to appear in court to hear about her um about um y- you know where they were putting her and for how long and then when was actual sentencing happening um and she she never appeared it was always over zoom from the jail cell and we went a couple of times to those and we're we're disappointed we didn't see her face to face i think some people thought you know if you if you could shoot daggers at somebody with your eyes in court um people had those thoughts definitely uh and then when she didn't show it was just on on zoom or or via satellite video um some of us were disappointment, and uh, she wasn't actually physically there. The day of sentencing, she, when she read her statement, she actually said, um, "I mean, she was remorse. Uh, she showed remorse, and she she was very emotional, um, crying a little bit. And the words that stick in my mind is that she would spend the rest of her life making sure other families didn't go through what." she and her family are going through as well as what my families were going through. So those words um, penetrated and etched my mind in in a big way, very impactful way. Um, it's one thing to say things like that, but does somebody actually mean it? Especially a few years down the road, are they still thinking that way? Are they still able and willing to, to make a difference in the world. So for, for me, I landed on those words and, you know, that was the eventuality for me wanting to explore whether those words were still true for her. Um, in, in my journey of grief in in that first year I dug deep, I had to figure out who I was and how I was showing up in the world. And, um, I forgave myself for things that had happened in my life previous that I was not maybe all that happy with. And in turn, you know, figuring out who the heck I was, I was able to forgive other people in my life. My dad was one of them. He had passed away 10 years previous and I was holding on to some anger and rage around um, how he left us and and my perception of that. Um, Really once I started seeing the positives in me and who I really was I started to see the positives in my dad and who he truly was. Mm. And that led me to want to explore who is Catherine and, and what is she all about and who, who is she, who was she, might she be different now after committing such a a horrendous act. Um, And that, and that led me to, you know, land on forgiveness for, for her. Mm. And that landed on, you know, finding peace in me. It wasn't until I found the peace within myself that my mind started coming back. My short-term memory started coming back. My kids started saying, hey, dad, it's nice to see you smile. It's nice to see you come to school and pick us up a little bit early and have some conversation. Um, You know, because it certainly wasn't for a period of time. I certainly did not show up to do the things I should have been doing as a father, as a, an employer, as a spouse, as anybody, really. And, you know, finding that inner peace and finding that um, it's, it's okay to explore the positives in myself, in my dad, in Catherine McKay, in other people in the world. I started seeing the world in a different aspect, in a different way. I started seeing things that I maybe missed For quite a few years. Something I drove by in my hometown that I just did not see. Autopilot. My autopilot was turned off. I I was seeing the world again. And, you know, in that curiosity, I wanted to know more about Catherine and her family. I mean, I could only, I was starting to think about her kids. What is it like to have mom get into this terrible accident? You know, where were they when they got the call? Or how did they hear about it? What do they think about mom being in prison what do, what do they think about it all so you know i had a period of time where i wasn't sleeping at night i wasn't doing very well and i was playing on social media and i landed on some comments that i learned were Catherine mckay's daughter and i made a mental note of that what her name was and eventually towards the end of 2018 um so a couple of years later i got the guts to send her a message and reach out and share my forgiveness um i was in calgary for a personal development event and it was the friday night and two o'clock in the morning i hit send on this message knowing that it would likely change the trajectory of of not only my life but who i was um i knew it was going to be something big i knew it was going to be profound um I was a very I was very apprehensive as to what her response might
0: be. I can imagine.
1: Yeah. So the next day at about supper time I got a response from her. Um I, I don't remember hundred percent what my message was, but I do remember my very last line was, I hope my healing heart um finds your healing heart and you know, we can sit down and have a coffee.
0: That's beautiful, um, man.
1: Yeah, so her response back was was pretty pretty awesome. Um she was very open to communicating. Um and in the next few days after that we communicated where her mom was and and cuz I wanted to part of my my message was I wanted to communicate with her mom. I wanted to tell her that I forgive her and I wanted to know if it was possible to write her a letter in prison. Um, she was in a healing lodge at that point so i I ended up getting a mailing address to to the Healing Lodge to send her a letter and Of course, this is December of eighteen and into January of nineteen and it wasn't until July of nineteen where I actually had the the courage to put said letter into a mail box and send it
0: I had delay man? What, what were you i mean you'd already written the letter right?
1: It was it was apprehension. It was I don't I don't know how this is going to go. I don't know if she'll even get it. I don't know if she's going to be, you know, responsive in any way. I didn't know she was going to be ticked off that I wrote a letter. I, did, I had no no idea. So yeah, you know, sending this letter off uh, again, I knew it was going to be something big for for me. Whether she even read it or not, it was big for me. Right, putting those words on paper. Addressing it to her and putting it in a mailbox uh, had a had a very profound effect on me. It, it was another lightning off my my shoulder, and the weight on my shoulder was was lessened again. Um, and I learned a few months later through her her kids, because by the, by then I was speaking to more than just her daughter. I reached out to her son. I actually met her son face to face. I met her daughter face to face. Two of them actually.
0: What was that Um, like? Uh, Were you, had you you met them before or no?
1: No. Not even at
0: court or anything?
1: Um, We suspected that some of the people in the room might've been family because they looked a lot like Catherine. Sure. Um, And it was correct. Uh, Two of her daughters were actually there and they didn't make it through the entire session. They got up and left um, partway through because I mean, reading victim impact statements and hearing everybody crying and, it's a lot, especially when your mom is the one on the other side. Um, but, yeah, meeting. So I met, I met one of her daughters uh, at a bakery in the little small town that she lives in. And, you know, same thing. Apprehension. What the heck is this going to go like? Am I crazy for doing this? Um, lots of those things. Self-talk, self-doubt. Um, but I'll tell you, I've never had... Um, An experience like that ever in my life, sitting down with the daughter of of the woman who was incarcerated for killing my family. Mm -hmm. She had two little kids the same age as Cameron and McGuire. And she told me numerous times, she said, I don't know how you can forgive my mom. Um, Those kids were the same age as my kids. I'm not there. I can't do that. I don't know how you're doing it. So Um, she
0: hadn't forgiven her own mother. For that. True.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. She was, she was having a hard time, really, really hard time with it. Mm-hmm. So if you can imagine two strangers in a coffee shop, having a, having a, a coffee that got ice cold. Cause neither of us took a sip. Cause we're both really nervous and have no idea what's going to happen. And a half an hour into it, holding hands and having just the beautiful conversation about life and kids and, You know, the best way for me to describe it is healing hearts, Mm. just sitting at the table um, in their healing journey and, uh, you know, a grief journey because she 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 was grieving the loss of her mom in a way. Right. Mm -hmm. She she's um, she's gone away. She's incarcerated. You can't phone her. You can't go see her. You can't, you know, communicate with her like they were previous. So she she was going through a lot, too. And to land on this amazing conversation, heartfelt, um, and both leaving there with just the biggest hug ever, Um, I I just can't – it's hard to put in words. It's hard to describe. I can Um, imagine. So her and I met twice that way and just carried on the second time with the same beautiful conversation. Mm. And, And by then I was thinking about this, writing a book and sharing my experience and sharing theirs. Because I, you know, I felt like for for them, they, they were blasted. They were shamed. They were called all kinds of names and people, you know, found them on social media, knocked on their doors, mm. telling them they should be the ones that are gone and dead, telling them that it should have been their kids that were in that car. Wow. Yeah, bad stuff, man, like so bad. And I, you know... I was led to share their story as well, because that, that really struck me and that really hit me hard in a way that, you know, they're going through something tremendously hard, just like I am. They're going through something, um, you know, unprecedented, something they've never experienced before too. And not knowing the ropes, not knowing how to deal with it, Right. And the hatred that they, they felt and and heard from other people, um, that led me to want to reach out to them and learn more. So they shared with me, you know, how was it? Like, where were they when they got the phone call? Who phoned them? Um, so I, in my book, I talk about a lot of that, um, how that unfolded for them as a family. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, it really is. I mean, so the book, I believe you titled surviving the crash and, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about the other side, you know, who there's the a side that most people, like you said, would blame or cast, you know, hatred their way um, dispersions, whatever you want to call it. I mean, there's really no, no good word for it, but you're, it sounds like you've realized that you're not the only one impacted by this event. And that I think telling both sides of, of the story is one of those things that wouldn't occur to most people. And you know, I think there'd be a mm-hmm. lot of pent up anger, You know, a lot of pent up resentment and just reaching out, I think, is a huge step. So, you know, how did you come to this place where you were willing to sit with, you know, the daughter, the children, the offspring of the woman who's responsible for taking four people from you?
1: And Initially, it was a curiosity of, you know, how how is Catherine McKay doing? Is she still true to her words that she read out loud in court and how are her, how are her kids and her family doing? So it was curiosity. And what I, what I really realized when I went to see her daughter and also her son, um, her son and I have this great relationship. We talk nearly every day. So, uh, it's, it's really a beautiful thing there too. We, we lean on each other. We, we share life uh, stories we you know I, I go and see him often i've been there probably six times in the last month wow so getting yes. to know him and his family and his kids and share you know um what, what it's like being a man raising small kids and challenges with work and with school and relationship things uh, him and i go with mm-hmm. uh go into detail with all of that we we've become very close so you know, going from this curiosity state, wanting to reach out to them, into man, I see these people are really hurting too, and you know they're on this healing journey as well. And so I was surprised when I met met them, and I was surprised with how I reacted, and I was amazed at how comfortable it got to be, and how good it felt for all of us. So you know, I wanted to explore it more because. Mm-hmm. At first, with the curiosity, I thought, okay, there's, there might be some hard feelings or people might disagree or, and that all, that all went out the window and it didn't matter anymore. Right. Um, it, it allowed me to connect with them on a deep level mm. and it was, it was amazing. And it allowed me to truly show and share who they were as a family. Um, when I decided to sit down and write a book, I just thought that our stories, um, have some value for other people that are going through some hard things in their life and you know I feel like when we have this amazing human connection with other people regardless of what we're going through, that can help somebody else when we share it that can help somebody else when we talk about it when we're open about it um, and that's that's really what was resonating with me and that's really what led me to, to, to stay the course and keep going with it.
0: It's so interesting to me that you were willing to entertain both sides of the story. I just, I don't find that that would be something that most people would consider. And it seems to me it's very sort of Clint Eastwood flags of our fathers versus letters of, from emoji Iwo Jima, right? Like to two sides of the same story. Um, and I think that this idea that, uh, if someone wrongs you that you're supposed to hold on to that for life. And then everyone in their circle and your circle who was impacted by this should hold on it and onto it and create this massive vendetta and, you know, just sort of propagate this negativity into the world is more common than not. And um, to get to this place obviously shows a tremendous amount of empathy, but it also shows a tremendous understanding of the concept of forgiveness and this seems to be a recurring theme throughout your story. So I'm wondering if you could maybe shed a little bit of light or your perspective on really what it means to forgive someone or to forgive yourself so that you can then interact with someone who potentially could have wronged you in some way. Mm-hmm.
1: It's a, it's a very, very hard question to, to really nail down and answer. Um, but for me, forgiveness has allowed me to to you know come to terms with a lot of things in my life, and for forgiving other people for things that have happened you know to me um, in a negative way. Uh, to to get to that, I explored the things that I've done to other people that maybe negatively impacted them or negatively impacted me. Um, exploring you know you know how can I make this things right how can I go out into the world and do things better be the best version of me um, and you know coming to peace with all of those things um, you know it's it's it, like I said it's a very hard question to answer um, <clears throat> I basically so getting to the point where we realize that everybody makes mistakes. Everybody has some sins. Everybody has some things they're not proud of. And once I landed on the fact that, you know, we all make mistakes and we're all not perfect, that allowed me to really analyze people for the good things they've done, for the positives they've placed on this planet. And, you know, when I really dove into Catherine McKay reading stories about how she helped um, lots of people in in her work environment and learning from her kids, who she was when they were growing up and the people that she was able to help and the people that she helped get their GEDs. She helped people steer away from drugs and alcohol. She helped people, you know, in relationship issues. And, you know, learning those things for me were, I mean, that was super powerful for me because it allowed me to focus on, okay, this person has a lot of good in them. This person has a lot of really great qualities And, you know, if she was that way 20 years ago, I got to believe that she's still that way today. That's still in her. And, you know, that was a big piece for me for forgiveness in that, you know, really seeing people for their true, the true essence, their, their, their beliefs, their great positive things that they do. Did she make a horrible, horrible mistake and, and have some drinks and get behind a wheel? Oh yeah. I'm not going to tell you that that's otherwise. Um, but what I focus on is the million good things that I know she's done. Her kids told me, other people tell me, I've read about them. Um, and, and that's, you know, reflecting that on everybody I talk to. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful thing when you can pick out all the positives in people in your daily interactions. Or, you know, even when people are down and out and having a tough time. And they maybe do some things that they're not proud of or that, you know, we perceive as negative or bad things. I still figure out how to see something positive in that person. You, you know, what What are they doing that's a good thing or that's a positive thing? Mm-hmm. And for me, that's what forgiveness is, is finding all the amazing, beautiful things and positive things that people do mm-hmm. instead of, you know, maybe one or two really bad decisions.
0: Certainly, is as your book is released into the wild. I know it was. It's it hasn't been out for a long time, but uh, recently released into the wild, and you know I know people have been picking it up. I haven't had a chance to read it myself. I'm just curious. You know, what is it that you want people to take away from what you've put on paper?
1: For me, it's. Um, you sort of touched on it. I think this is bigger than forgiveness, and I think this is bigger than you know a grief journey and stories of families that have been through something really hard and tragic. I think that if we all operate from a different way, um, I can only imagine how beautiful uh, this world would be and how, you know, different cultures get along, different people from different countries would get along, people, you know, different races, different sex, different uh, ethnicities, doesn't matter. Um, There's a big divide right now. There's a big... um, There's a there's a lot going on. There's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of evilness. There's there's so many things going on in the world. And I think this book really makes people think about their daily environment in a much different way. It makes people think about how to interact with other folks. You might not know what's going on in somebody else's life, and if you treat people with grace and respect and see the positives if you know I can only imagine the world we live in if we all did that.
0: Yeah.
1: I can only imagine the world we'd live in if we all chose to make an effort to get along with somebody that has a slightly different opinion than we do. Mm. And so this is much bigger than forgiveness and, and grief. This is this is this is what I've landed on. This is how I found my inner peace was, you know, how can I make the folks around me uh, that have possibly hurt me in in a, in a you know some small ways. Some people hurt me in a big way, and I'm totally okay with all of that. And it's because I operate from a different perspective or a different standpoint. Uh, the ability to see the positives in everybody, and you know how do we amplify all those positives in people?
0: Mm. That's a beautiful way of phrasing it, my friend. I appreciate that. I'm curious, you know, we've, we've, we've got some commonalities from the Robert Kiyosaki teachings all the way through to some of the personal development stuff. I'm, I'm curious if, you know, your experiences in your personal development journey, your leadership uh, training journey, if that has impacted your ability to sort of reframe and, and show empathy, um, in a situation as grave as, as, as one like this all the way down to just daily life. 100%
1: One hundred percent it has. I um, you know, in my journey learning who the heck I was and what I'm built, uh, what I'm built from and who I am and what I want, and where am I going, what direction, all all the questions that we all ask ourselves, um, truly, for me, the more personal development I did and the more understanding for you know h- how human beings are designed and what we do and what we're capable of, the the more I dove into all of that, the better I understood myself and, you know, the, the better employer, the better dad, the better author, the better everything I think I am. Because um, truly, I know more about me. There's nothing to do with anybody else. I, I, I've learned a great deal about me through personal development and all the work I've done. So, you know, I, I recommend that to everybody when I talk about this. And it doesn't matter where I talk about this. People tell me all the, all the time about things that are happening in their life and that they're stuck or they, they don't know the answers, they don't know what to do. And often I say, like, learn more about you. Learn more about um, whatever situation going on in your life. Dig a little deeper. Why is that happening for you? And, you know, how can you maybe change your perspective on it? How can you learn uh, more tools about it? And for me, personal development, thats that's where it's at. It gave me tools to understand how I tick, how other people may tick. And um, that, that's been profound for me. 2018, I did um, a ton of courses. I, I didn't stop. Once I got that thirst for knowledge and learning more about me, I ran with it and, and did a great deal of it. And um, I wouldn't be here talking to you today or I wouldn't have written a book had I not learned um, who I was or how I'm built.
0: For sure. And we, and just for clarity, we've gone through some of the similar classes, uh, through the sci world and yeah, credit those guys for changing my perspective on many, many, many things. It's a fantastic program, uh, among many, many others, but that one was my first exposure to really taking a hard look at how I'm showing up in the world. And I think you're right. You know, you do really have to have a clear understanding of who you are and what you want to create or else it's going to be a tough road to hoe. And as I look back, I can, I can think of those moments where I had a breakthrough and I can remember the concepts that really impacted my life. And I'm curious when you look back on your experiences in the personal development world, the leadership development world, what are some of the things that stand out in terms of what you took away that really impacted the way that you show up in the world?
1: Um, the, the single biggest takeaway for me was being open and honest with how I was doing and how I was feeling and sharing that. Um, there were times where I grabbed the mic and I started talking and people started crying. I started crying. I learned how to get in touch with my emotions. I learned that my words have, have, uh, have some value. I didn't value my words um, until I went through some of those experiences. I didn't know that me sharing openly and honestly with how I was feeling, how I was doing, would connect so deeply with other people. Um, and, and since I realized that, and I grabbed the mic more often, and I talk more often, the more people really connected to what I had to say. And, you know, especially when I was talking about the story of, of you know, finding forgiveness after such a horrible thing happening in my life. Um, I, have, I have people coming up to me in tears afterwards and saying I've been stuck on wh- whatever the case might be in something in their life for many many years and telling me that I just gave them hope or telling me that I just gave them some tools to try to use when they get home. That's really what landed the hardest with me and really was my biggest takeaway was that my voice has has value for mm-hmm. other people and that possibly my story, could be somebody else's guidance or somebody else's hope. Um, I've, I've had about 800, 850 books go out the door. And that's the one word that I hear the most often is hope. Mm-hmm. People are reading it and saying, wow, um, you've really given me hope. And uh, that, that's awesome. Like, you know, I had some apprehensions when I printed the book and, you know, I had them in my hand. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is really a real thing now. Um, I'm feeling very exposed. Uh, the whole world's gonna learn who I am and read about me. And I thought, my gosh, that's crazy. And as soon as I started getting the feedback, very soon, days, weeks, and people were just pouring their heart out to me, I thought, okay, this is, um, this is awesome. Um, I, I think I'm making a difference. And now, so that was in July when we printed and, and started putting them up to, into the world. Um, you know months months down the road now into december and the feedback every day i'm getting feedback like that and i i love it it's awesome um i'm i'm grateful for the whole experience um and it's amazing how people are connecting to it in a lot of different ways but i you know i'm going to come back to hope people are people are finding hope it's great
0: that's amazing that's amazing that has to feel great <laughs> There's no way oh, so it couldn't you know, I mean, let's just, let's just be honest. And I love what you had to say about stepping into your own voice, your own power, um, putting yourself, you know, out there to a certain extent. I mean, there's there's something to be said for the the idea of being vulnerable and sharing, you know, from a place of honesty. I think a lot of times people confuse vulnerability with weakness, and Anytime I'm in the conversation with someone who is experiencing that or or in conversation with myself, when I'm experiencing that, I have to remind myself or others that vulnerability is actually a demonstration of strength, right? That, um, you know, if three guys go to the bar and there's a hot chick across the room, the only guy that matters is the guy that walks over to her. You know, all the other ones are just sitting there wondering how he came up with the strength to do that. But the truth is he put himself in a vulnerable position. He could be shot down. He could be made fun of. But every guy who watched him do that has respect for him because he put himself in a vulnerable position. And stepping into that place of power is something that we as humans, I feel like, can do a lot better job of. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to share your story from such honesty and and authenticity um, because the reality is, man, it, it gives other people permission to do the same.
1: You got it right there. Yeah. When people say hope, that's, that's exactly how I, how I see it is how you just put it you know, it, it allows them to understand that their pain can be power.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Truly. We all have our pains and I, I really believe that that's our power too.
0: For sure. For sure. So with that said, you know, knowing that you've had familial success, financial success, and now also seeing the flip side of that uh, with, you know, a tremendous tragedy and now written a book and coming out of it, seeing the other side of it. You know, what does success look like for you in your life these days? Um,
1: As a serial entrepreneur who made the leap from being the employee to the employer, I, I certainly was driven by business and and finances and and money um 2016 when my life was flipped upside down that that was completely erased for me i'm no longer money driven or or you know anything financial really doesn't doesn't coexist with success in any way for me Mm. for me success is more in line with you know how can i make an impact in the world how can i help people how can i Keep pouring hope into people. How can I um, make a difference on a bigger scale? Mm-hmm. You know, if I can if I can reach out to a few people and ho- help them one on one, what would it take to to you know help a hundred people next month and a thousand people after that? Mm-hmm. To, to me, that's success. Is is how far can my ripple effect and my reach go? Um, it's not really a measurable thing. There's no numbers attached to it. There's no There's no finances attached to it. It's strictly you know, the feeling I get. I can have a day where I feel like I helped even just one person, or I did the right things with my kids, or things are going really well with my spouse, or somebody came and picked up a book and gave me the biggest hug and had some tears and shared something that happened with them in their life. That's success. That that to me is a successful day, week, month, year. It's pretty simple. If I feel good. I'm
0: successful. I love it, man. I love it. I think more and more people are coming to that realization. You know, there's been many decades of chasing the I used to say Almighty Dollar, but it's not so mighty anymore. <laughs> you know, it's uh, and you know once you have it, there's um, there's another dimension to life. I love the way that uh, I think Naval Ravikant phrases it. You know, you want to be a you want to become a king before you become a philosopher, because you know if you can take care of yourself, it's much easier to take care of other people. And so once your needs are met, you know why not help other people meet their own? And I think with your book, obviously your reach is, you know, is whatever it will be. You know, there's there's really no way to measure it because it's going to be here long after you and I are both gone in one form or another, right? So anyone who grab, gravitates toward that can actually be impacted. And I think that's an amazing and beautiful thing. So for those out there who've maybe experienced something similar or having trouble going through the the fog of grief, I think is how you phrase it, and getting to that place of forgiveness and looking for the answers inside. How can they get in touch with you? How can they get a copy of the book? Uh, what is the best method or the preferred method that you would have for someone to make contact?
1: So I have um, have a website and you can get a hold of me through the website and you can also order a book through the website. And uh, survivingthecrash.co So that's all one word. SurvivingTheCrash.co, and from there I, uh, you know, I've been giving out an email as well. I love talking to people and, and communicating with folks. So, Sasky Chad, saskychad, S A S K Y C H A D at Gmail.com uh, is the best way best way to reach me through email. And I'm open to conversation if um, if you've listened to this. This podcast, and something resonates with you, or you feel the desire to reach out to me and talk about some experiences in your life, I am 100% open to that. Um, I uh, I just feel like I can make a difference for some people. So if if you feel like that uh, that resonates with you, by
0: all means, reach out. Uh, super generous, my friend. I'm assuming the book is also available on Amazon.
1: You bet, you bet. Uh, we in fact launched the ebook last week, so it's paperback as well as as the ebook, and just under surviving the crash, finding inner peace through forgiveness. And uh, uh, if that doesn't bring it up, just type in my name, Chad Miro.
0: Fantastic. I'll get all that stuff linked up in the show notes. And my last question is generally the same, and it has to do with wellness. I believe that you know there's more to it than. Showing up physically healthy, as I think you've demonstrated with the processes that you've gone through to get to where you are today. So I'm curious, you know, what is your take on what it means to be in a state of wellness? Hmm.
1: You know, at 43 years old, I finally think that um, touch on that question. Um, it, it's a it's a tough a tough one to answer. Um, in the in the last couple of years, I've really been quieting my mind and really settling down and you know going inwards with with thoughts and um, trying to get to that state of nothingness, if you will. And in, in the meditation, that's a tough one for me. However, it's it's all linked to the same thing. To me, it's um, just getting still with myself, getting still with the world, and um, believing that things uh, things that are meant to come way my way will and You know, we're all we're all in the same boat. Um, So instead of trying so hard to to achieve or acquire things, it's getting to that state of peacefulness and, and, you know, that inner peace that allows it all to flow and come to me instead of me working so hard to go after and get it. Um, Essentially, that's well-being in my in my mind. I mean, success and
0: well-being. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's like exiting the chase, right? Like, <laughs> You don't have to chase, man. You can actually be chased, which is kind of nice or, you know, have things flow to you. I, I love the framing on that. So thank you for sharing that, my friend. I appreciate you.
1: Beautiful. I appreciate it to you too, brother. Thank Abs-
0: you. Absolutely, man. So there you got. There you have it, guys. We've got uh, Chad on the podcast today. The book is called Surviving the Crash. We'll make sure everything is linked up in the show notes. So if you want to grab a copy, feel free to go there. And please, if you're the type of person who would love to speak to someone who has maybe been through what you've gone through or something similar, hey, take this guy up on his very, very generous offer to have a conversation. Trust me, Canadians are very easy to speak to. You'll love it. (laughs) So until then, guys, on behalf of Chad and myself, we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys, and if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing, and by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike, and if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com, or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.